You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1. For I have taken all this to my heart and explained it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you while under the sun. But this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we pray that you give us wisdom and discernment in your word and help us to understand its relevance for our lives. Help us to understand what Solomon is describing here and to learn the lessons that your Holy Spirit would intend for us. May your spirit be our teacher this morning, our helper in this passage. And we pray that you would give us hearts that are inclined to your word and incline our hearts to your word. Give us hearts inclined to obedience so that we may love you and that we may worship you, that we may know you and your will for us. Conform us to the image of Christ through this passage of Scripture, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're talking about the subject of death. That sounds great, doesn't it? Dave Rich came up to me this morning before, right before the message and he said, this is probably the only church where you would read in the bulletin, children, the word of the day is death. And just in case you were wondering, is it Mother's Day again? Jim's talking about death. Did I miss something? No, it's just because this is coming up all over again in Solomon's subject matter. It's been a while since he has talked about this, though death has never really been far from his mind. Uh, death, I, I've said several chapters ago back at the beginning of the book, it kind of hangs like a cloud over this entire book of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's never far from Solomon's mindset, from his, his way of thinking. Death, is the, death casts its shadow over everything in the book. At the beginning of Ecclesiastes, everything Solomon analyzed and examined and looked at under the sun, 
he always came to the conclusion that it was meaningless because because death kind of cast its shadow over everything. All our, all of our works and our labor and everything we build, buried in the sands of time. Everything we accumulate, we die and then we disperse it to others. Everything that we have, all of our reputation and what we seek to acquire in life, all of it forgotten. And so death just is this this thief that seems to threaten to rob us of all of our significance. So much so that Throughout the book, Solomon just continues to come back to it's, it's meaningless and, and it's empty. And what makes it meaningless and empty is not that God is in the midst of it. It is that death hangs over, over all of it. So everything Solomon evaluates, he evaluates from under the sun, under the cloud of death. It casts its specter over everything. And then in the middle part of the book, we have seen that Solomon picks up the subject of wisdom. And here he gives us truly wisdom literature in the middle of Ecclesiastes as he analyzes everything, the works, uh, our worship, our labor, our riches and wealth and poverty and oppression and living under the king and all of life under the sun. He is then applying wisdom to it. And now having done that, Solomon returns again back to the subject of death, which he zeroes in on in verses 2 through 6. And really it kind of sets up the last, the final, and the most forceful of the carpe diem passages in Ecclesiastes. So that we read in verse 7, 8, 9, and 10 that that commendation to seize life and to live life and, and to enjoy all of the things that God has given to you. Why? Because death casts its shadow over life. And so since death casts the shadow over life, we ought to seize the life that God has given to us and live each day to the fullest. And we'll talk about that next week. But this week we are talking about the subject of death. Death for Solomon was it never really left his, his viewpoint, his paradigm, if you will. He never really escaped that all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's always there. And there is a lesson in that. You and I ought to live our lives in such a way that we are always aware of the brevity of our life and our own mortality. Always aware of the fact that today could legitimately be my last day on planet Earth. It is only a life that is lived under the reality of death and aware of death and before the face of death. That is the life that is lived in faith and in fear and in worship and in service and meaning to others. A life that is lived where death never comes into the perspective, you ignore it, you push it out of your mind, you never give any thought to it, that is destined to be a wasted life indeed. That is going to be a vain life. Because only life that is lived in light of the shortness of life so that we might plan for death, only that life can be lived truly to the glory of God. Because then we live life in light of our death and we live life in light of eternity and we plan accordingly. And that's what Solomon is driving at in verses 2 through 6. So we pick it up in verse 2, and we're going to notice in these verses that Solomon says three things about death. First, it is indiscriminate in its selection. It comes to everybody. Second, it is deserved because of our sin. That's in verse 3. And then verses 4 to 6, it is destructive because of what it steals from us. It is indiscriminate, it is deserved, and it is destructive because of what it steals from us. All right? So now that we're all appropriately cheered up this morning, talking about the subject of death, Let's begin in verse 2. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Now, when he talks about fate at the end of chapter, or the middle of verse 3, and when he talks about fate at the beginning of verse 2, he is describing their death because that is the subject matter of the larger context. That is the fate that he is talking about. That all men die. Now, we all have this one thing in common. We will all die. Though 
the nature of our death will vary each of us from person to person. Some people will die slowly. Some people will die quickly. Some people will die early. Some people will die late in life. Some people have their death announced to them beforehand so that they can look forward to it and anticipate it and plan for it. And for some people, death creeps up on them, as it were, from behind. Just this last week, a sitting senator was diagnosed with brain cancer. So he's one of those individuals that now gets to sit and every day wake up with the realization that death is one step closer. And he gets to sit there and watch death approach him. And apart from some divine intervention, some grace of God that might spare his life, he can watch death, and he and his family members can watch death as it steps closer and closer and closer. Other people in an instant die and they fall down and hit the ground from a stroke or they wake up dead some morning. Well, they don't wake up dead. I mean, they, they die in the middle of the night and so they, other people wake up and they're dead in the morning. And it, and it comes suddenly and swiftly from behind them. They don't have a chance to plan for it. But regardless of the, the, the differences and the distinctions in the ways that we all die, all of us what? All of us die. That's the one thing that we all have in common. And so when Solomon says there is one fate for all, verse 2, the righteous and for the wicked, for the good and for the clean, he is describing here the, the broad scope of all of humanity. And to make his point that, that death is something that strikes all of us, he, he has these, these series of descriptions here. And I want you to notice a few things about these descriptions. First, they are opposites. Notice that in verse 2. They are the righteous and the wicked, the good and the clean for the unclean, for the man who sacrifices, the one who does not sacrifice, the good man, so is the sinner, the swearer, so is the one who's afraid to swear. These are all polar opposites. And by describing all of humanity in the terms of these polar opposites, Solomon is almost as if he is bracketing humanity. Whether, whether you're on this side or whether you're on the other side or you're somewhere in between, all of us are in between, we're somewhere on this spectrum. No matter who you are in this broad sweep of humanity, you are going to die. That's the one faith that is enjoyed. That's the one thing that all of these people have in common. Second, you'll notice that there are moral, ethical, and religious terms that are used. So Solomon uses words like clean and unclean, the man who offers a sacrifice and does not sacrifice. Those are moral and religious terms. Those are terms of the cult or terms of the religion of the day. And so the clean man would be the one who fastidiously observed all the Old Testament law and he observed the dietary laws and the clothing laws and the, the harvesting laws with the crop and all the ceremonial laws that were part of the nation, the religion of Israel. That would be the clean man. The unclean man is the one who, who cared not for any of that and just disregarded all of the ceremonial aspects and might have lived his life always and entirely in ceremonial uncleanness. And so it is with the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. The one who sacrifices, the one who would bring an animal to the temple, he was aware of his obligation before God. The one who didn't sacrifice, didn't care about his sin, wasn't aware of his sin, didn't think he needed an atonement for his sin, and so he would never bring an animal to the temple or to the, to the tabernacle. So those are religious and, and, those are religious and sacrificial terms that are used there. Third thing I want you to notice is that these, the, the positive or moral quality is listed before the negative or immoral quality is listed. Notice that all the way through the list. The righteous and the wicked, the clean and the unclean, the man who offers a sacrifice, the one who does not offer a sacrifice, the good man, the sinner, the swearer, and the one who is afraid to swear. Now that observation that the moral or good quality is listed first and the negative or bad quality is listed second helps us to discern what Solomon means when he refers to the one who swears and the one who is afraid to swear. Now, in keeping with the order in which he is listing them, the one who swears must be the one who is good, because that's listed first. The one who is afraid to swear must be the one 
uh, must be somebody must be the bad person since that is listed second. And so what does it what is he describing when he talks about the one who swears or is afraid to swear? This would not be an individual who uses profanity. That's not the idea behind the word. It is the one who takes an oath or swears an oath before God. Remember, like we talked about in chapter five when Solomon talked about our worship. You have the individual who comes into the presence of God and they offer a sacrifice and as part of their worship, they make an oath before the Lord. And Solomon warns us about making hasty and disingenuous oaths before God. So the one who swears would be the one who comes into the presence of God, offers this sacrifice, and then makes some pledge to God to sacrifice or to give or to do or to serve or to, or, or to live in a holy manner before the Lord. That's the one who swears. The one who is afraid to swear is like the one who does not offer a sacrifice. He doesn't care about it. For whatever reason, he doesn't want to swear, he doesn't want to make an oath, maybe he's afraid of not being able to fulfill his oath. This is the negative individual. And the fourth thing I want you to notice is how all-sweeping and comprehensive, taken as a whole, this description of people describes the totality of all of humanity. And that's Solomon's point. It does not matter whether you are on this extreme, you are religious, you are devout, you are good, you are righteous, or whether you are on the other stream, you are extreme, extreme, you are irreligious, not devout, and wicked. Those are the brackets of humanity. And so every individual is somewhere between those two parentheses of humanity. And thus we all die, and that is his point. All of these people die, the righteous and the wicked. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer, so is the one who does not swear. Death strikes every last, every single individual. It does not matter how pious or righteous you are. Morality is no defense against mortality. It doesn't matter how moral you are doesn't matter how righteous you are. You're going to die anyway. And now you say, well, if it doesn't matter how righteous I am, then why would I live righteously if I'm going to die anyway? You live righteously because you're going to die. See, that's the point. God will judge every secret thing, Solomon says at the end of it. Fear God in the days of your youth. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God's going to judge every secret thing. We're all going to die, and the realization of that should never encourage immorality or licentiousness, the realization of that should always encourage us to live in light of the face of God and in the fear of God because we are all going to die. So the end of verse 3 or the beginning of verse 3 says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun that there is one fate for all men. One fate for all men. doesn't matter whether you're a king or a peasant. As one commentator said, life is kind of like a, like a chess game. See, on a chessboard, there are kings and there are bishops and there's a queen and there are peasants and pawns and all of these pieces have different values and different significance and, and, different, and different moves inside of the game. But at the end of the game, everything goes in a box. And so it is with us in life. Whether you're a king or a peasant, at the end of the day, we all go in a box. And it's good to keep that in mind. It doesn't matter where you're at on the spectrum, rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter what it is. At the end of the day, we all go into a box. And that's Solomon's perspective. We are all going to die. So, middle of verse 3 says, there's one fate for all men, and that is that we all die. That just doesn't seem right, does it? There's something about death that Solomon here calls an evil. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that there's one fate for all. Generally speaking, this is how God deals with humanity in other ways as well. For instance, if you look out at humanity, if you just look at how people die, observing nothing else but the fact that both the righteous and the wicked die, you cannot tell from reading an obituary, unless it is mentioned, you cannot tell from reading an obituary and the fact of somebody's death whether that person was righteous or whether that person was a wicked individual. You can't tell that, can you? You read the name and how old they were, how old or young they were when they died, a little bit about them, you can't tell whether they were righteous or wicked. You can't tell that from an obituary. 
And God deals in death just like He does in the rest of, in the rest of life in general. Let me ask you a question. When a, when a natural disaster strikes a nation or a city, and there is an earthquake or a tsunami or a tornado, are the churches left standing while all of the bars and brothels and casinos wiped out? Do the churches remain standing? When, when something strikes, when cancer strikes, is it just the wicked that get cancer? Or do the righteous suffer with that as well? There seems to be no discrimination between the righteous or the wicked. On the other side of the ledger, is it just the righteous people whose crops flourish? Or do the wicked, do they get abundant crops as well? Does it rain on just the righteous and the sunshine on just the righteous? Or do the wicked get these blessings as well? The wicked get them as well. Just looking at how God deals in humanity and nature with just from under the sun, you cannot discern from what happens to people under the sun whether their individual is righteous or wicked because it seems indiscriminate that these things happen positively and negatively to the righteous and the wicked. And so it is with death. Death comes to the righteous and death comes to the wicked. And this is the evil that is done under the sun. Of all creatures on the face of the planet, those, of, those who are created in the image of God, which is you and I, that we are created in the image of God, made to live forever. Death is the worst possible fate. Death is an enemy. It is an intruder. It is a usurper. But get this, it is very well deserved. Now look at verse 3. This is where you see that death is deserved. Verse 3, the middle of the verse, Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. That's a telling verse. The hearts of the sons of men is full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives and then they die. I want you to notice how opposite that is to everything the world says about humanity. Right? This, is, this is God's assessment of humanity and then there is the world's assessment of humanity. So if you listen to Oprah Winfrey or Deepak Chopra or Joel Osteen, you will hear them say that within all of us there is a little spark of the divine. All of us have good hearts. All of us are, have good intentions and motives, and even though somebody may do something that is wrong or wicked or cruel, really into their heart, they're very good, good people. There is in, in, in all of humanity this spark of the divine and goodness that is just waiting to show itself. And unfortunately, we are just products of our environment, and because of our environment and the other things that happen to us, it, it hurts us, and so that we do bad things. Now, whether you listen to Oprah, Chopra, or Joel, that's what you will hear. God's assessment of humanity is entirely different than that. Now, that we make this mistake in assessing ourselves because we compare ourselves with other people. We think that we are spanky and good. And then we say, of course, there are outliers to this. They're the Hitlers. They're the Pol Pots. There's the Stalins. They're the horrible individual who do all of these bad things. The serial rapists and the murderers. Those are the outliers. But most of humanity is not like that. Most of humanity is like you and I. And so we measure ourselves by our own standard. And we measure other people by our own standard. You have to admit that all of the people that you associate with, that you fellowship with, that you spend time with, your relatives, your friends, your co-workers, they're not the outliers either, are they? They're not the serial rapists. They're not the mass murderers. They're not the perverts, the child molesters, etc. They're not that. Now, maybe you got crazy Eddie, Uncle Eddie in your family, and you think, okay, well, he's a little odd, but apart from him, all of the people that we really want to spend time with, they're not that wicked. And we have good relationships with each other and good interactions with people. And so we wrongly conclude... We are spanky people. We are really at heart good people. And God's assessment of our situation is entirely different. Because God measures by His standard. And His standard is not how do we compare with other people. His standard is how do we compare to His standard, which is perfect righteousness. And that is where we all fall short. 
And notice that Solomon does not make any distinction here between the righteous and the wicked because he is describing humanity in general. He's not talking about what happens when an individual is redeemed or born again in a New Testament biblical sense. He's just describing humanity as you look across it. The hearts of the sons of men is full of evil, and it is something that is in our hearts. There is there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who loves God. There is none who does good. There is none who can change their spots. This is the God's assessment of all of humanity. Our hearts are full of evil and wickedness. It is not just what we do outside. It is who we are as human beings inside. This is the description of the heart of every man and woman and child born into this world. Every one of us. Hearts full of evil. He said, now that doesn't describe me, Jim. Doesn't describe me. I'm really not that evil. Even today, I'm not that evil. Okay, let me give you a little thought experiment. Imagine that we could take a computer chip and put it behind your ear and record every thought that you've had in the last 24 hours in living color and then display it on the screen up here for all to see. Would you want to attend that showing? No, you wouldn't. The idea of that would horrify you, right? Why? Because you're good at heart? No, you're just like the rest of us. Wicked, sinful individual. That is the condition of our hearts. It is irredeemably that way as long as we are in this flesh, as long as we are in in this body. Our hearts are full of evil. Every man, woman, and child fits that description. Our hearts are full of evil. We're tempted to say that's, that's not us, but Jesus said, if you lust after somebody, you have broken the commandment against committing adultery. If you've hated somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Look around you. Is this truth of Scripture not something that is empirically verified everywhere you look? Everywhere you look. The world is full of rape, murder, violence, hatred, lust, pornography, adultery, fornication, blasphemy, covetousness, lying, stealing. That is, that is what characterizes our world. Now I ask you, are, is all of this wickedness just done by the outliers? The fringes of humanity? That's a lot of outliers, isn't it? Or is all of humanity described in this verse? All of humanity is described in this verse. That we are wicked. And our hearts are full of evil. And that's not all. Insanity is in our hearts all the days of our lives. The word insanity, the word that is translated insanity there, has a moral component to it. It means a moral wildness that is irrational. That's the way of defining it. A moral wildness that is irrational. Now somebody can be insane or crazy, but not in a moral sense. For instance, if a man thinks that he's a a cucumber, he might just be, he thinks he's Sir Lancelot, he might just be crazy, but that's not a moral craziness. But when a man thinks that he is a woman, that has a moral component to it. That's a moral insanity. When a man thinks that his five-year-old boy is a girl because he played with Barbie dolls for three minutes, and then he gives that boy drugs in order to alter him physically, and then begins to confuse that boy for the rest of his life about who he is and what God has made him, that is insanity, and it is a moral insanity. That is an insanity with a component of wickedness to it. That is what Solomon is describing here. Men are morally insane. Now, I don't know what you think when you read the news headlines and watch what's going on in the world around us, but there's one word that I keep using over and over and over again. Do you know what it is? Insane. This is all insane. Yesterday, we were told that sexuality was fixed. You're born that way. It is as fixed as the foundations of the world. It cannot change. Nothing can change it. It's DNA. It's genetics. It is what it is. I got to be who I am. I got to be me. It's inalterable, unalterable. Then today we're switched. No, it's not fixed. It's fluid. It changes every day. Today I'm a man. Tomorrow I'm a woman. Next week I might be a kumquat. Who knows what I could be? It changes all over the place. It's always changing and always fluctuating. This is insanity. 
Do you ever say to yourself, whether we're talking about politics or abortion or, or immigration or taxation or finances or whatever it is, do you ever say to yourself, we are losing our collective minds? This is what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. It is a depraved mind that God has given up to that depravity. And we are seeing it unfold right before our very eyes. This is insane. And it's not just cuckoo, cuckoo crazy. It is a moral insanity. It is a, it is a mental depravity that has wickedness as a component of that insanity. That is what describes the world in which we live. Is there a phrase on the face of the planet written in any language that better describes the world in which we live than what you find in verse 3? Is there one? I think you'd be hard-pressed to find one. That the hearts of the sons of men is full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout the days of their lives. They say, that describes today for sure, but sure different back in Solomon's day, right? Why were the former days better than these? It's not of wisdom that you ask this. Back in Solomon's day, what would describe humanity? Their hearts are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout the days of their lives. It was the same in Solomon's day as it is today. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. This has been going on since the beginning of time. Cain killed Abel. That is a moral wicked insanity. And it happened right after the fall of mankind. This is described Cain and Abel. It described Adam and Eve after their fall. And it has described every individual that's lived since. And nothing has changed because there's nothing new under the sun. And so it wasn't any better back in Solomon's day. It was the same. Solomon looked around at his world and said, the hearts of sons of men is full of evil and insanity is in their hearts. And then they die. That's the condition of mankind. Now, isn't all sin truly insanity? Think about it. All sin really is some form of moral insanity. Now, when you're involved in the sin, it doesn't seem insane. It seems rational and logical. And, and of course I would do this because this makes complete sense. That's what sin does. Sin deceives us into thinking that our moral insanity is actually sanity. That is why you talk to people who are morally insane, that are advocating all of the crazy stuff going on around you. You try and talk to them, and it's like talking to a wall. They don't see it because they think it's completely rational. Of course a man can be a woman, or a woman can be a man, or a man can be a zer, or her, or any other confusion, or a kumquat, or a cucumber, or a house cat, or whatever they want to be. We just all self-identify. That sounds crazy to us, but to those in the world, it's not crazy. It seems rational and sane. Because sin makes us convinced that our insanity is sane. Why would Cain kill Abel? That's insanity. Why would a man leave his, his wife and his kids, destroy his family, maybe his ministry, or his reputation, all for his mistress? That's moral insanity. Why, why do we choose addictions? Why do we do things that are self-destructive? You ever look at people and they're involved in self-destructive behavior and you think you're like a blind man running toward a cliff and you're doing this in spite of the fact that people are begging with you not to do this. You seem intent on your own self-destruction. Why is that? Because all sin makes us insane. Why does a man make himself willingly bound to an electronic harem on the internet and engage in pornography and other self-destructive behavior? Why would somebody do that? You know why they do that? Because they're morally insane. There's insanity in our hearts. There's wickedness in our hearts. This describes men. And so, the condemnation of God is just. This is the effects of sin. It is moral insanity. There are other passages of Scripture that describe this as well. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4 that we, our hearts are darkened, that our minds are darkened, that we cannot think right. Romans chapter 1 says our thinking is broken. Our, our morality is broken. Our reasoning is broken because we are a broken people. 
We are born in sin, dead in our trespasses and sin. We are unable to please God, unable to turn from our sin. We can no more turn from our sin than a leopard can change his spots. We can't make ourselves new. We can't change our hearts. We can't renew ourselves. We can't change our flesh. We can't renew our flesh. We can't reform our lives. We can't abandon sin. We can't believe. We can't do righteousness. We can't please God. We can do absolutely nothing because that is how broken and hopeless and helpless humanity is. That is why salvation is all of grace, because man can do nothing to merit it. All we merit is eternal judgment, eternal destruction. The standard of the law says that we are required to obey the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if that is the standard, listen to me, every individual in this room, including myself, has sinned enough in the last 30 seconds to warrant an eternal damnation. If that's the standard. We've all failed that standard. That is not the end of the story. Right? Now, we know something that Solomon didn't know, and that is that God himself stepped into this insanity to redeem a people for himself. And he lived a life in our place, and he died a death in our place, so that those who will repent, turn from their sin, and believe upon him can have eternal life. And deliverance is being delivered from the curse of the law, from the wrath of God, from the moral insanity, from a, 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 a killing, a conscience that kills me, a dirty conscience. It is being delivered from our own sin and eventually even the presence of sin. That is what redemption gives to us. God has solved all of that on behalf of all of those who will trust His Son, every last single one of them, because in Christ, the price for our sin was paid and paid in full. And so redemption delivers us from all of that insanity and darkness. That is the hope that you and I have that Solomon never had. Now, what about this body? It still has to die. This, this cannot be reformed. You can tell by looking at it. It's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. It's going to get worse all the way until I meet my appointment at the end of it with death, and then that body will die, and that flesh will perish, and it will rot away. It will, it will be gone, and we will be renewed, and we will stand with Him in eternal life in resurrected bodies. That's the hope that the righteous had. Not something that Solomon didn't understand, but it's something that you and I understand. The difference between, well, I'll use myself as an example, the difference between Jim Osmond in his unredeemed fallen state, apart from the grace of God, the difference between Jim Osmond in that state and Adolf Hitler is a difference of degree and not of substance. There was nothing in Hitler's nature that was different than what was in my nature. Nothing. There was no sin that is beyond my ability to commit no corruption to which I was unsusceptible, nothing. The difference between Jim Osmond and his unredeemed state and Adolf Hitler is one of degree, not of substance. We were the same fallen humanity, apart from the grace of God. If you doubt that that is true of you, it is because you do not know you as well as the Bible knows you. That is true of all of humanity. Our hearts are full of evil, and insanity is in our hearts throughout our lives. And God redeems us out of that. Now, Let's look how death is destruction. Death is indiscriminate. Death is deserved. And verses 4 through 6, death is destructive because of, because of what it steals from us. In verses 4 to 6, Solomon is, Solomon is comparing death with what living, and, and his ultimate point is that living is better than dying. So verse 4, for whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Now, now, he's talking positively here about life as opposed to death. And you may ask yourself, but it seems to me I have heard Solomon say that death is better than life, right? We've seen that in Ecclesiastes earlier where Solomon says, better to die than this, better to die than this. And now he's saying it's better to live than to die. Is Solomon confused or is he talking about different things? He's talking about different things. 
The two times previously where Solomon said that death is better than living, first one, he's talking about being under oppression. If you're under oppression, you live under that wickedness of oppression, and one official watches out over another official, right? Remember, you are squashed by those who are more powerful than you. Solomon says it is better to die and to not be here and to not see the evils of that oppression than it is to live and have to see them. And then he says in chapter, uh, I forget what chapter it is, but... Solomon says that it is better to, to die than to, in, to live life and to not be given the gift of enjoyment, right? It, it, if a man lives a thousand years twice and he can't enjoy the good gifts that God has given him, better the miscarriage than him, is what he says earlier. So earlier he says it's better to die than to live, and here he says it's better to live than to die. Both of those are true. There are some circumstances where it is better to die than to live, and there are some circumstances where it's better to live than to die. Solomon here is describing a circumstance which is better to live than to die. And what is that circumstance? Verse eight, or verse 4. Whoever is joined with the living, there is hope. Now look at this. This is curious. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. What does that mean? That means dogs are better than cats. That's what that means. <laughs> Even if it's a big cat like a lion. A lion's just a cat. So surely dogs are better than cats. And you can get that because it's right there in the text. Black and white for you. In God's word, never doubt it. Unless we're talking about a poodle. Poodles are not. Poodles are just cats in dogs' clothing. They're not really dogs, but a dog is better than a cat, even if it's a big cat. So that's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn is that, and this really goes back to the view of dogs in that culture. So let me set this up for you a little bit. In that culture, dogs were despised. They were despised. This is another reason, why, by the way, why the former days are not better than these. Any culture that would despise dogs is a culture that we're, we're glad to leave behind, okay? But in those days, dogs were scavengers who roamed the countryside. They ate garbage. They ate corpses that were thrown out. Um, they, they were just the garbage hounds. And so they were regarded as unclean and despicable creatures, the lowest of all of the creatures. A lion was regarded as a regal and noble and admirable beast, Right? The power, even the lion is actually used as a symbol of our Messiah. Uh, the symbol of the tribe of Judah was that he was a lion. Uh, a lion was a regal and, and noble beast the dog despised. And so here's what Solomon's saying. In fact, there is a Sumerian proverb that says, let me quote it to you, he who esteems highly dogs which are clever is a man who has no shame. That was a Sumerian proverb. He who esteems dogs is a man who has no shame. Well, I guess that would apply to me under those circumstances, Right? So that's how dogs were viewed. Now, what is Solomon saying? It is better to be dead and despised, or sorry, better to be alive and despised than dead and admired. It is better to be alive and the servant in a poor man's household than it is to be a dead king. Better alive under any circumstances, no matter how horrible it is, so long as you are able to, in the words of the rest of the passage, enjoy the good gifts that God has given to you. Why is it better to be alive than to be dead? Look at the rest of verse 4, or verse 5. For the living know they will die. There you go. How's that for a reason to be alive? Better to be alive. Why? Because at least you know you're going to die. Does that sound like encouragement to you? Now, I don't think that that's really the way I put it there. I don't think that that's what Solomon means. I think he is saying this. While you are alive, you can at least look forward to death and make plans for it and anticipate it. So one of the advantages of being alive is that you can live in the light of your death and live accordingly. Plan for eternity, anticipate your death, make arrangements as is necessary, always aware that you are living, as we talked about at the beginning, in light of your impending death. So it's better to be alive because the living know they will die and they can plan accordingly. That's the gist of it. Now verse 5, the end of verse 5, deserves a little bit of, of close scrutiny. Verse 5 says, But the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward 
for their memory is forgotten. My grandmother, great-grandmother, used to quote that verse to me all the time. Every time we talk about somebody who had died, she would say, the dead know nothing. She would just say, the Bible says the dead know nothing. Now, I don't think my great-grandmother would know where this was found, because I never heard her say Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5 says that the dead know nothing, and it was really a loose paraphrase rather than a quotation, right? So why would my grandmother quote that all the time? My grandmother was a Seventh-day Adventist, and one of the doctrines of Seventh-day Adventism is the belief that when you die, your soul goes into a state of sleep, not to any place that is conscious or sentient in any way, but you go into a state of, of being asleep, and you remain asleep basically in a long nap where you are not aware of anything until the resurrection on the last day, and then you are resurrected to your reward or your punishment. It's called the doctrine of soul sleep. Seventh-day Adventists believe this. Jehovah's Witnesses believe this. I believe that Mormons in some way believe a version of this. Basically, any religion or faith that teaches that hell is not eternal has to also teach that of the doctrine of soul sleep. These two are connected. They go together like chocolate and peanut butter. You can't have one without the other. They are connected in that way. Soul sleep and the annihilationism or any form of annihilationism. So my grandmother would quote this, see the dead know nothing. They're like people who are asleep. They're not aware of anything going on around them. They're in this, in this nap. Have you ever been in an anesthetic... Anesthetic? That's the right word, right? Yeah. My brain will catch up with me here in just a second. Have you ever been, have you ever gone in for a surgery? What happens? You're talking with the doctor one moment, next moment you wake up and you're in a different room and it's all over and hours have passed. It's scary and freaky in this. It feels like you died for just a second. You have, when you sleep, you have some, when you wake up, you have some kind of understanding of how long you've been asleep. Right? You know, you were aware that you've been asleep. But with anesthetic, when you go under, you go under. And it's like when you wake up, it is as if no time has passed, even though hours have passed. The doctrine of soul sleep says that's what happens to our souls. We die, and then we are resurrected, and we're like, what? 6,000 years passed? I had no idea so much time had gone by. Because we were just napping. That's the doctrine of soul sleep. Now, is that what Solomon is describing? Soul sleep? Let's go to the end of the passage, read verse 6. And we'll work our way back to this because the context actually gives us the answer to this. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished and they will no longer have a share in all that is done where? Under the sun. So what is Solomon talking about? Is Solomon talking about the eternal state and what happens to us after we die? No, he is not. Not that Solomon is unaware that that is a reality, but that's not what he is describing. He is describing our participation in this world. The dead know nothing. They know nothing about what is going on in this world. They know nothing of love or hate or zeal. Uh, you, can, you can put a bullhorn next to the ear of a dead person and they're not going to be startled when you blast that thing off. They are comp- their participation in this world is over. Solomon is describing the utter, complete, and total permanent end of all of our participation in this world when we die. The dead know nothing and everything that they were and all of their ability to participate in this life as we know it is over. When you breathe your last, your participation in this world ends just like that. It is over and it is done. That is what Solomon is describing. They no longer have any share in any of the activities that go on under the sun. Their participation here is done. Now when Solomon says in verse 5, they no longer have a reward, those who believe in soul sleep would say, well, that means that where they went while they are napping, they have not yet woken up to their reward. Is that what Solomon means by reward? Look, at the, look down at verse 9. This is for next week, where Solomon says, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your what? This is your reward in all your labor. So what reward is Solomon talking about? Eternal rewards for good and bad and eternal life? No. He is saying the dead no longer have any reward in this life. They've heaped up, they've heaped up uh, riches. 
They can't participate in anything. They can't work and enjoy the fruit of their work, which is where he's going in the very next passage. So the dead know nothing does not refer to the eternal state. It does not refer to any kind of doctrine of soul sleep. And listen, anytime anybody builds a doctrine on a verse out of Ecclesiastes, be scared, be very, very scared. Be wary of that. Solomon is not unaware that there is an eternal reality after this life, but that is not what he is describing in this book. He's just simply saying that when you die, it is all over. Death robs you of all participation in this life. Now I ask you this question. Will death rob you? Will it destroy you? For the believer, those of us who have trusted Christ, death is not something we fear because Christ partook of flesh and blood that he might destroy him, the, the works of the devil, and destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Through what Christ has done, death is still a reality for us, but we don't fear it. Death is still a reality for us, but the sting of it is taken away. The strength of it is taken away. Because for you and I, if you've trusted Christ, we know that death for us is not the end of our existence. It is not the end of our reward. It's not the end of anything. It is the beginning for us of life indeed. And that is what we look forward to. Let's bow together. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for saving us and for redeeming us and providing that redemption out of this insane, crazy, sinful, lost world. We thank you that though we were helpless and hopeless in our sin, destitute and without any remedy, that you sent your son into this world to die for those who were his enemies, for those who had waged war against the king of righteousness. And you have redeemed us from that rebellion. You have changed our hearts. You have lifted us out of this insanity. And we thank you for that. You pray for any who are here or who are hearing this message that that have not yet trusted Christ for salvation, that you would do a work in their hearts and redeem them from that insanity. Make them to trust in Christ. Open their eyes to their need for a Savior. And may you be glorified by redeeming sinners for the glory of your great name. Thank you that we have a share in that. Thank you that death for us is not the end. We thank you that Christ has died in our stead. For it is in his name that we pray and rejoice this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.